Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 108th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. I'm working remotely here. I have a family vacation, but it's not going to stop Podcast 108, baby. Yeah, podcasts are too too important. So we're on a roll here with uh, consecutive podcasts. I know me and you have been out for a couple at a time, but uh, the other one just does it with Aaron or Nick in the room. So uh, we'll just keep this thing rolling. Let's do it, my friend. Um, and uh, just for listeners, happy early birthday. Uh, Matt's birthday is tomorrow, Friday, the, or excuse me, Thursday, uh, the 29th. So happy early birthday, buddy. Thanks, partner. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so as always, before we begin, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on July 27th. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 2.4% for the month and up 17.18% for the year. The Dow up 1.6% for the month and up 14.55% for the year. The NASDAQ up 2.17% for the month and up 15.1% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 5.1% for the month of July and up 11% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, is down 2.1% for the month and up 6.77% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.05%, two-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.21%, and the 10-year Treasury yield coming in at 1.24%. Hey, Mark, Um, take a look at that uh, performance on small caps being down 5% so far for the month of July. You know, that Delta variant, people are thinking that, you know, because COVID disproportionately affected small caps last year that if the Delta variant gets out of control, it could replicate that. Right, exactly. And, and I think that, that that makes sense, right? You know, the, the smaller areas of the market are more volatile and get hit harder in times of the, the risk-off trade, right? So that kind of makes sense to me that, that, you know, small caps have struggled uh, over the past two months, really. And the thing that's interesting is, you know, um, you know, investors have to do their research, but there could be some pockets of opportunity there and remember, when that sector starts to move, it could move really quick. I mean, we've seen a couple of days earlier in the month when the market was kind of deciding what it was going to do with small caps. Three, four, five percent moves in a day is not uncommon, listeners. Please note that. Yeah. And, and again, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, this risk is out there and it's being talked about. So it would really shock me if this is what brought down the market. Not saying it's not serious. I'm just saying in relation to, you know, the economy and the way the markets are functioning right now, it would surprise me if this was actually what what brought it down again. So just wanted to throw that out there. Absolutely agree. The market does a really good job of baking a lot of this news in. It does. It does. Um, so the first thing uh, we have 
Uh, in terms of news headlines and current events, Matt, were uh, U.S. Exist- existing home prices, and they were up 23.4% over the last year, which is the second highest rate of increase ever. The highest was 23.6% in May, and medium home prices uh, in the U.S. Um, right now are $363,000, and they're more than double their value from 10 years ago, which was about $175,000. So this was from Compound Advisors. And Matt, I just wanted to get your opinion on this. I know that obviously this has a lot to do with recent inflationary pressures, but if we look at this, you know, over the past 10 years, which this stat is doing, you know, can it just be the case that houses are getting better? They're more efficient. They have more technology than 10 years ago. And it's adding to this price increase because I think there's a, you know, there's kind of a misconception that this is all just being, you know, this, these price increases are just coming in the past year. And I don't really think that's the case. It's like with anything else, you know, the more technology, technologically advanced houses get and the more uh, you have in your houses, the better the appliances are. Um, you know, is that a part of this that people aren't talking about? I think that's a great point, Mark. I mean, let's take it in areas where they have to build the houses to, uh, let's say, higher code standards in the Midwest. Let's take California. You know, they have to build those houses to withstand earthquakes and those codes keep changing, gets more expensive. Think of Florida, hurricanes, you know, and again, you know, I just think that they, they put more into these houses than they did in the past. I think that's a big component to it. And I think in addition, you know, you're starting to see a little bit of a comeback from housing prices really doing poorly from 07 to roughly 2011, 2012. So some of it is what I call a reversion to the mean trade. But I think you make an excellent point that, you know, they're putting more and more technology into these homes. The code standards are going up. And guess what? It costs more money. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So just some food for thought. I thought I'd bring that up. Um, the next thing was a crazy stat that we found about uh, car prices. So um, this was from Compound Advisors who uh, got this uh, information sourced from J.D. Power. And uh, they said this, the average price of a one-year-old used car is now only $80 less than the price of a brand new vehicle. That difference is typically 5000 or more. There are some used cars that are actually selling for higher prices than when they uh, than when they were new. So Amazing. this is kind of crazy, Matt. And you can check out our show notes on our social media uh, on Facebook, Jessup Wealth Management, or on Twitter um, uh, at Jessup Wealth or LinkedIn, Jessup Wealth Management. The show notes will be there, uh, and you can kind of see these gra- these graphs from Compound Advisors, and it's pretty. Uh, incredible to see the jump in these one-year-old vehicles um, in terms of prices, just because there's so much demand and there's a chip shortage right now. So all these car manufacturers can't pump out as many cars as they have hoped. So, you know, you have prices going up in, in used cars. This is not common listeners. Do not be trying to buy new cars as investments in my two cents and try to flip them. You know, um, this is a very rare occurrence. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, moving on, uh, another stat that's pretty shocking, uh, TSA passenger throughput, which is the number of people traveling by plane, 
as fully recovered from the pre-pandemic levels, Matt. So, um, so we are back uh, to normal capacity in terms of people going through TSA and flying again. Um, you know, again, that could always change, especially as you mentioned with the new Delta variant and everything like that. But um, it's, it's a, it's a struggle to travel right now, even just like my own personal experience and just hearing experiences from, from other people, it's not the same that it was before COVID. Um, you know, it's, it's almost a, uh, you know, not normal if you're, you have no delays or no or cancellations now, it's just a completely different type of environment. And, you know, anyone's guess as to when that's going to go back to normal. Absolutely. A third of the restaurants are open at the airports. They can't find staff is the issue for them. Mm-hmm. You know, the airlines are trying to recertify everything from flight attendants to pilots, you know, and it's going to take time. I mean, if there's one delay, you get the chain reaction. You know, last night I was reading some research reports in regards to jet A fuel in the, in the, in the west side of our country that since um, international travel is down still, you're having people travel a lot more to the likes of Montana, Wyoming. And guess what? Those airports aren't used to stocking the amount of jet fuel that's needed. And Mm -hmm. so guess what? They're starting to have to cancel flights to these areas because the fuel's not there. And in addition, what the airlines are doing is they're actually loading more fuel on the plane to get there. So they have less fuel to get back. So it's, um, it's interesting. Yeah. And I thought, uh, people were crazy pre-COVID on, you know, how long they decided they wanted to wait in a Starbucks line, but this is just insane now. <laughs> I've flown through Charlotte a few times, and I'm not kidding. It looks like there are a hundred people in line at one Starbucks shop. I saw it. I flew through Charlotte yesterday, Mark. I absolutely agree with you. That's crazy. And actually, they just reported earnings earlier this uh, this week, and they reported pretty well, actually. So Very interesting. Very something, interesting. Something to it. Uh, moving on to my favorite part of the podcast, which is tweets, articles, and research that caught our eye from the week. Um, the first thing was a tweet sent to me by George Marudas on Twitter. Um, so he every now and then shoots me over a couple of charts that he thought I would find interesting. And I wanted to share this one on the podcast. His handle is at Chicago Advisor on Twitter, if anyone was wondering. Uh, And it's a chart of the S&P 500. And he tweeted, the S&P 500 is now up 100% from its March 2020 lows. And this was as of July 12th, right? So this was, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Matt. And I think it's just important to, to put this out there in front of people that, yes, even with all of the tough times that we went through as a country over the past year, you know, our main stock market index doubled from the low of 2020. So I just thought it was interesting to share with listeners. You know, my whole two cents is here. Don't bet against America uh, from an investment standpoint. Secondly, you know, in the depths, when you see all those scary headlines, when you go back to February and March of last year, you got to think about how it relates to your long-term financial plan and not overreacting in a short-term basis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And people were rewarded for for sticking in there and hanging in there. And people that sold obviously weren't. And I'm sure that there's still some people out there that, you know, not only experienced a 30% drawdown in their account, but didn't reap any of the rewards of the market coming back. So correct, sir. 
Um, next was a blog post written by Ben Carlson titled How to Prepare for a Lengthy Bull Market. Um, and I just wanted to read a little bit from this one, Matt. And I apologize okay. to people watching this as I'm swatting a fly. We're in the midst of an office build out. So we have uh, some friendly uh, flies flying around that aren't usually here. Um, a little more open air in the office than usual. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the first thing uh, Ben starts out um, with this saying that following the great financial crisis, a slew of books came out promising to help you navigate market crashes. Here's how to hedge this. Here's how to hedge that. Here's how to remain in the fetal position with your portfolio. Here's how to prepare for Armageddon. And while it's always a worthwhile endeavor as an investor to hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, the fetal position mindset can be detrimental if you're unwilling to accept some risk. There has never been a risk-free way to earn solid returns in the markets. The other side of preparing for bear markets is preparing for a bull market. And isn't it like something like markets are you know, positive or going up 80% of the time. Don't quote me on that, Matt, but it's something along those lines. Markets go up a lot more than they go down. Okay. But I want to say it's either seven out of 10 years, eight out of 10 years, statistically speaking. Right. Exactly. But I think, you know, we reverse our thinking and everyone prepares for the worst, but no one prepares for good times. Right. So I think this is, this is kind of timely. When Um, statistically it occurs more often. Yeah, exactly. He said, I know valuations are high. I know the U.S. stock market has been positive 11 out of the past 12 years. I know the past 15 months or so have been a crazy orgy of excess speculation in certain parts of the market. But bull markets can last longer than you think. Consider the U.S. stock market returned 15.5% annually from 1942 to 1965. That's 24 years of above average gains. Or how about the 17.7% returns over the 20-year stretch from 1980 to 1999. Since we've been inundated with prices, or excuse me, pieces about how to prepare for a bear market, here's how to better prepare for a bull market. Number one is expect pullbacks along the way. Returns in the previous long bull markets were extraordinary, but they didn't come without setbacks. I count 14 different double-digit downturns, which works out to one every year and a half or so. There were also four different bear markets with losses in excess of 20%. I'm sure every time one of these bears hit, people assumed the bull was over, yet it kept coming back. Number two, figure out how to stay invested. If you wish to earn high returns in the stock market, you can't get scared out of stocks when those inevitable setbacks occur. Holding on during bull market can be harder than it sounds. The longer the gains last, the more tempting it is uh, to time the market. Number three, filter out your FOMO. One of the worst parts about bull markets is seeing others take irrational risks and making more money than you. It's difficult to stay satisfied when you see other worldly returns elsewhere. So this is an example of the AMC GameStop short squeeze stuff that we experienced earlier this year. The best way to avoid FOMO is by creating filters to define what you will and won't invest in. If you have a specific set of strategies, asset classes, and securities you're comfortable with, it's much easier to say no to everything else, regardless of how much money others are making. Next, avoid unnecessary mistakes. And if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And I love that. Yeah, that goes back to, you know, there's there's no holy grail in the markets, right? So, so if it does sound too good to be true, generally, 
you know, that's, that's the case, right? It is. And I got, I got, I got two comments to that article uh, from Ben Carlson. Okay. The first is in regards to valuations. We got to remember listeners, the market is viewed on a valuation basis on the past four quarters of earnings. Well, guess what? That takes into account a really tough environment in 2020 for a lot of companies. So guess what? Their earnings are going to be depressed and their valuations are going to seem high. You got to be forward looking. When earnings normalize, most likely the valuation on the overall market is not going to be as high as it is. So Wall Street is forward looking on this metric. The other comment I have, Mark, is investors have to avoid what I call roulette investments. That is where you have the GameStops, the AMCs of the world. You have to acknowledge for what it is up front when you're getting in that trade. It's pure speculation. It's red or black. You're picking a direction. The party's going to stop at some point. And guess what? You don't want to be the one left without a chair. Yeah. And, and, and to even take that point further, Matt, I feel like most people heard about those types of you know meme stocks or whatever you want to call them um, from like a friend. It's not that they found it on the, their own, right? And typically when you're doing things that everyone else is doing, like taking advice from friends or, you know, colleagues, you know, there's a long history of those things not ending well and not being prepared. And everyone thinks about, you know, all the money that they can make, but they kind of block out uh, the money that they can possibly lose too. Well put. Um. The last thing I had, Matt, before I turn it over to you, was a snippet from a blog post written by Michael Batnick on June 9th, titled "The Shoe Shine Indicator." The shoe shine. Yeah, I'm saying that right. Indicator is dead. Say that five times fast. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> he says, "Before the crash in 1929, Joe Kennedy dumped all of his holdings." He allegedly sold because he got a stock tip from his shoeshine boy and knew the end was near. Since then, people have tried to use different sentiment gauges to assess the level of excitement or despondency in the overall market. We've looked to magazine covers and personal anecdotes. I'm sorry to say, but the shoeshine boy indicator has long since expired. I wrote about my plumber trading stocks in July of 2020. This guy walked into my office, saw some charts on my screen and told me what he was up to. He literally said to me, what should I do? I've got 130 grand in the market and I have no freaking clue what I'm doing. To say that this sent alarm bells ringing in my head was an understatement. Stop the ride. I want to get off. This can't continue. No way. This is out of hand. Spoiler, it continued. So I think this goes back to the fact that, you know, um, it's the same thing as, you know, hearing Uber drivers or, or taxi drivers talking about, you know, stocks or cryptocurrencies and that type of thing. Um, but I think information just travels too fast that, you know, in today's day and age, and we've talked about this several times on the podcast before, but, you know, in this new age of, of Twitter and, and having, you know, the world in your, in the palm of your hand at all times that you can make a trade whenever you want, you can look up any news article in the world whenever you want. You can stream different uh, news stations whenever you want. Um, I just think that this is attributed to just that, is that information travels a lot faster today uh, than it did, than it did uh, even 10 years ago. I think it's very well put. You know, the, uh, the shoe shine indicator, the taxi indicator, I think those aren't 
obviously as reliable. You know, I got I to gotta share some, some history with listeners. You know, in the late 90s, when Alan Greenspan was our Federal Reserve Chair, this is not an exaggeration. CNBC would watch him cross the street going to the uh, every six weeks Federal Reserve meeting. And depending upon the size of his briefcase, how thick it was, they speculated whether rates were going to change or not. They called it the Greenspan briefcase indicator. Take that in for a second. That's pretty crazy. Oh, how times have changed. Yeah, the whole briefcase indicator, that's long gone. That's long gone too. Yeah, so that's why it's like, you know, I, I, again, people are always, and again, this was something that came up. It's like, you know, we had clients and we had other people saying, you know, everyone is talking about, you know, cryptocurrencies or AMC or, or GameStop or what have you. Um, you know, the party party's got to end soon. And sometimes, you know, it can go uh, a lot longer than, than people can think. So absolutely can absolutely can. Well, Mark, um, I got a couple for listeners today. You ready for me? Ready as I'll ever be. Let's do this. So the first thing is another stat as to why investing and not trading is fruitful. So listeners, last couple of weeks, I've been talking about this. And I just want to bring more statistics, you know, to light. So we have a chart on our show notes from Bespoke Investment Group from July 21st. Mark, just one more time, will you remind listeners how they can access our show notes? Yeah. So uh, Facebook or LinkedIn, Jessup Wealth Management, or on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, and you'll be able to see all this stuff. Appreciate that, my friend. So this chart from Bespoke shows the cumulative returns going back to the start of 2011, so a decade. And as typically the case, the vast majority of S&P 500 index returns in the last 10 years, guess what, Mark, come from outside regular trading hours. For the past decade, it's a return, cumulative, of course, of 116%, while the returns between the opening and closing of the bell are considerably lower at about 60% mark. So if you just bought and hold, 246%. Why am I highlighting this? You know, you're still seeing people trying to time this market. You're still seeing people trying to trade this market. Guess what? You could hit a home run. You could also strike out. I'm one. You want to be hitting singles and doubles. And most people who are listening to this podcast do not need to be taking on that type of risk. So this is my um, let's just say my, my PSA on trying to day trade. Yeah. Yeah. And then just to go just a little deeper into the details for people who aren't aware, um, you know, the, the, the stock market is open Monday through Friday from nine 30 in the morning to four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, however, you know, people can still buy and sell in the after hours is what they call when the market is not open. So, um, you know, prices can, you know, gap up or gap down and open two or 3% up or down um, from the previous day's market close. So, you know, not all the moves come between 930 in the morning and, and four o'clock in the afternoon. So I just wanted to throw that out there for people. And, the, and that's, so I appreciate you explaining that. And this step, you know, proves that, that, you know, you might have an ABC stock close at 10 and the next morning at 930, it opens up at 1050. And if you weren't in that stock to begin with, you missed out on that 5% return. 
Yeah. And the best example of this or the most recent example is people just think back to, you know, February and March of 2020 when the market was, you know, opening down 7% from the previous day's close. Like, so that, that yeah. stuff can happen. Absolutely can. All right. So the next thing I have is from uh, Barry Ritholtz, and this is from July 21st, Mark. And um, it's titled, this note for me is titled for listeners, how much cash do some of these mega cap stocks have? Before I continue, will you just take a couple of minutes, uh, maybe a couple of seconds and explain what a mega cap stock is? Yeah. So mega cap uh, refers to the largest of large companies by market cap, right? So if you want to get, um, you know, uh, the, the, the market cap of, of a stock is you take the, the price of the stock times its outstanding shares available to investors, right? So these are the largest companies that are publicly traded in a mega cap. So S&P 500 index, for example, is a large cap stock index, but you know it still has Apple and Amazon and Microsoft, which are considered these mega mega cap stocks that are head over heels, you know, larger in terms of market cap than most other stocks that are publicly traded. Perfect segue. You have no idea what I'm about to say. You ready for this? Ready. Apple is sitting on $38 billion in cash and cash equivalents. If you uh, include bonds, its cash goes up to $195 billion. $195 billion is a lot of money. So you ready for this, Mark? How many companies in the S&P 500 index could Apple buy with $195 billion? 460 Practically all of them. And I can we, can we can probably name a decent amount that they can't buy. <laughs> yes, we can name those more than we can right? name the others, right? Right, exactly. So they, yeah, they have a lot yeah. of a lot of cash. Um, and it's not just and it's not just Apple. You know, a lot of these guys do that are in the top twenty in market capitalization in the index. This is not a uh, recommendation to buy or sell that specific name, i.e., Apple. Rather, I want to exemplify how much cash are on the balance sheets of some of these mega cap names. I found that stat extremely interesting. Yeah, I did too. I did too. And, I, you know, I think it's going to be the same story for, you know, all of these larger mega cap tech names. They're all going to be in the same boat, maybe not to the extent that obviously Apple is, but, um, but yeah, people got to realize that. I would speculate, Mark, and you and I've talked about this on the podcast in the past, going back 20, 30 years, what it made, what made up the top 10 in the S&P 500. I mean, Jenna had a, uh, an exercise for you and I a couple of weeks ago on our, um, on our talk uh, in regards to what are the top five in the year 2000. And we did that on the, uh, the questions with Matt and Mark that we do every week on our social media. And you and I got, I think, two or three of them right. Mm-hmm. Well, Take into account, now that these companies have so much cash, I think it is going to, in my opinion, make the cycles a lot longer than in the past, because to a certain extent, they can control their own destiny. Yeah, I agree. It actually would be an interesting exercise to go back in the year 2000 and take the top five largest companies in the S&P 500 and see how much cash they had on their balance sheet at that point. You know what? We're going to stick uh, Nick Whitaker, a uh, uh, director of research on this one. All right. We'll get it. 
All right. I got one more for listeners. I find this very valuable. This is a tweet from Callie Cox. She's the um, ally investment strategist on July 9th. All right. I'm going to read through it. And if at any point you want to make a comment, just cut me off, Mark. You ready? Okay. Here we go. I'm going to quote verbatim. She says, friends, when a bad headline crosses the tape and you get worried, your first question should be, could this keep my portfolio from reaching my goals? Why? Because if you're a long-term investor looking several years out into the future, 99% of the daily headlines probably won't impact your portfolio for the long term. Most of them are just noise, little speed bumps on your journey. Yet, even the scariest of headlines can trick you into doing something detrimental to your success, i.e. selling too early. The wisest investors know this. Even your fear of an economic downturn may be keeping your portfolio back. Sure, recessions are frightening and frustrating, and you can insert any scary term you see in the media when those things occur. But big stock market pullbacks tend to end quickly and recover within a few years. And so I'm going to pause there for a second. Your initial reaction, sir. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, I think that there's too many people that are paying attention to, you know, what the Fed is saying and what they're doing with interest rates and all the economic reports and the price of oil and this and that. And, you know, what color the sky is that day and what color the grass is that day. And it really doesn't matter. I think people just like talking about it because it it seems like the the sexy or sophisticated thing to do is pay attention to what Fed Chair Powell is saying, or Treasury Secretary Yellen is saying. And ultimately, it really, you know, for most people, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter, you know? No, you put it, you put it well. And, and what Callie did is she put, she put a chart, and she probably had about eight or nine different instances where the declines were scary and how long it took from the high to the, to the bottom, and then how long it took to fully recover. And she had data sets back to 58, 63, 67, 72, et cetera. I found it very helpful. And you'll find that on our show notes. But um, she, she uh, finished it up with this. So the next time you see a scary headline, take a breath and ask yourself, what could this mean for the next X years until I reach my goal? If it's just noise, think about it as an opportunity instead of an obstacle. Yeah, people should be spending their time enjoying their lives rather than, you know, watch, you know, these major financial media news outlets, because most of the time it's not going to be fruitful for you. So, you know, why make yourself more stressed, do things that you love. Don't worry about that stuff. Well put my friend, I'll send it back to you for the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah. So this came from a tweet by Jeff Levine on July 12th. Um, and he's kind of a tax guru. His Twitter handle is at CPA planner. Um, so he tweeted this scenario, you get a pre-approved offer for a new credit card with an introductory rate of 0% for 20 months. You currently pay off your existing cards each month, but you don't have a card with a rate of 0%. Question, do you get the new card to take advantage of 0% for 20 months? And before I let you reply, Matt, I just want to read a couple of the replies uh, that, that Jeff received. The first one he okay. received was, nope, if I pay my credit cards off each month, I don't care about the interest rate. Am I missing a detail or is this a trick question? 
And Jeff replied and said, you could put the money you'd otherwise be using to pay off the card each month in a safe interest bearing account like a CD. Then in 20 months, you pay the principal amount and keep the interest for free, which I think is a pretty good idea that a lot of people aren't thinking about. Um, the next reply was, nah, I'd rather keep my 2.5% limitless cash back USAA credit card, 2.5% back regardless of what you purchase and pay it off uh, in full monthly. The last one I wanted to read was someone who said, so how many miles or points is the signing bonus when we were talking about this here? Did you say zero? Not interested then. The interest rate on a credit card is irrelevant when you never pay, or excuse me, when you never pay on any, I think this was a typo by this guy, but essentially when you don't, when you pay it off every month, you're not paying any interest. So the interest rate is regardless, right? Um, so after this, uh, you know, the day after, I think Jeff tweeted and said, I'm blown away by the overwhelming uh, percentage of no answers here. I wonder how much folks answers would change if interest rates were higher. 20 months of free interest on your float is not too shabby. So I know that there's a lot of different considerations that go into this and credit card points are, are a, a big part of this, I think. But what is your initial reaction here? You know, my two cents is if you pay that card off every month, I really don't think it matters. You find the card that's right for you, whether you travel a lot, find a card that gives you more advantage there, et cetera, right? Uh, if you carry a balance, there's more cards that are advantageous. Uh, to me, I, 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 I would not... This would not entice me uh, per se, but I think there's people. What out if there what if CD it. what if CD rates were eight percent for a totally different CD. story? Yeah, totally different story, my friend. <laughs> you become the bank. You become the bank. Right. They're exactly. going to give me free money for twenty months. Completely different story. Right. Right. So, and I also think it's just one of those things that it's always a hassle to, you know, if you want to play the game of getting credit cards that have introductory rates of 0% of just jumping around and opening new credit cards. It's like, it's a pain in the butt kind of, you know? Well, uh, you, you just, you stole the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, at what rate would the hassle make it worth to you? You said mm-hmm. eight, I jumped, mm-hmm. right? If you said three, you still don't got me. So yeah. somewhere in between three and eight, you might get me. <laughs> right, exactly. But you know, it's not even it's not even worth talking about right now because you can't get it's anything. Not, close it's not going to happen. That. We're yeah. talking about utopia. Not going to happen. Yeah, I'm still getting emails from Marcus by Goldman Sachs saying that they have this great deal on an 18 month CD for 1.5 percent. I think. So that doesn't that doesn't it, get me excited. I don't know about you. That does not get me excited. Not with inflation where it's at. No. And we talked about that, listeners, on prior podcast and uh, podcast 107 um, in uh, Mark's absence. Aaron and I talked about what is the real return on some of these bonds? And guess what? You take into account inflation, you're actually losing purchasing power. Right. The real, the real rate of return is actually negative. Exactly, my friend. Um, so that's all we had for this week, Matt. Um, I know that we're right in the middle of earnings season. Uh, a bunch of the mega cap tech companies uh, reported this week or just this morning. Um, so if people are into that type of thing, uh, be aware of that. Um, earnings season will continue to roll on for the next few weeks, but the majority uh, is going to be this week and next week, and then it's going to start to calm down. But anything else you want to leave with listeners before we leave it here? 
Just one thing, and this is going to be an important thing for listeners. This is why you always wait to the end of the podcast to see what we say. You ready for this? You're going to see a lot of headlines, listeners, in regards to the U.S. debt ceiling. All right? This is going to be hitting in August. Politics play games. But remember, if you look back statistically in prior debt ceiling showdowns, and even if the government were to shut down, historically, it doesn't negatively affect the market. My two cents, do not let that be a distraction. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, you're going to see a lot in the headlines of that over the next few weeks. But again, just as Allie was saying in the, the tweet storm that she had that, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this stuff doesn't apply to, to everyday investors that are just trying to save to, to get to their retirement goal. So um, right. don't let it affect you. Yep. Um, well, thanks everybody for tuning in to episode uh, 108. We will be back with you next week for episode 109. Hopefully everyone has a great rest of the week and a fun, safe weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.